Chapter Fifteen of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter Fifteen The March of Ghosts. In no other way can I describe the journey from the river Iro to the border of Tibet. About eleven hundred miles through the snowy steppes, over mountains and across deserts we travelled, in forty-eight days. We hid from the people as we journeyed, made short stops in the most desolate places, fed for whole weeks on nothing but raw, frozen meat in order to avoid attracting attention by the smoke of fires. Whenever we needed to purchase a sheep or a steer for our supply department, we sent out only two unarmed men who represented to the natives that they were the workmen of some Russian colonists. We even feared to shoot, although we met a great herd of antelopes numbering as many as five thousand head. Behind Balir and the lands of the Lama Jasaku Khan, who had inherited his throne as a result of the poisoning of his brother at Urga by order of the living Buddha, we met wandering Russian Tartars who had driven their herds all the way from Altai and Abakan. They welcomed us very cordially, gave us oxen and thirty-six bricks of tea. Also they saved us from inevitable destruction, for they told us that at this season it was utterly impossible for horses to make the trip across the Gobi, where there was no grass at all. We must buy camels by exchanging for them our horses and some other of our bartering supplies. One of the Tartars the next day brought to their camp a rich Mongol, with whom he drove the bargain for this trade. He gave us nineteen camels, and took all our horses, one rifle, one pistol, and the best Cossack saddle. He advised us by all means to visit the sacred monastery of Narabanchi, the last Lamaite monastery on the road from Mongolia to Tibet. He told us that the holy Hutuktu, the incarnate Buddha, would be greatly offended if we did not visit the monastery and his famous Shrine of Blessings, where all travellers going to Tibet always offered prayers. Our Kalmuk Lamaite supported the Mongol in this. I decided to go there with the Kalmuk. The Tartars gave me some big silk hatik as presents, and loaned us four splendid horses. Although the monastery was fifty-five miles distant, by nine o'clock in the evening I entered the yurta of this holy Hutuktu. He was a middle-aged, clean-shaven, spare little man, labouring under the name of Jelib Jeramsrap Hutuktu. He received us very cordially, and was greatly pleased with the presentation of the Hatik, and with my knowledge of the Mongol etiquette, in which my Tartar had been long and persistently instructing me. He listened to me most attentively, and gave valuable advice about the road, presenting me then with a ring which has since opened for me the doors of all Lamaite monasteries. The name of this Hutuktu is highly esteemed not only in all Mongolia, but in Tibet and in the Lamaite world of China. We spent the night in his splendid yurta, and on the following morning visited the shrines where they were conducting very solemn services with the music of gongs, tom-toms, and whistling. The lamas with their deep voices were intoning the prayers, while the lesser priests answered with their antiphonies. The sacred phrase, Om Mani Padme Hung, was endlessly repeated. The Hutuktu wished us success, 
presented us with a large yellow hatyk and accompanied us to the monastery gate. When we were in our saddles, he said, "'Remember that you are always welcome guests here. Life is very complicated, and anything may happen. Perhaps you will be forced in future to revisit distant Mongolia, and then do not miss Narabanchi That night we returned to the Tartars, and the next day continued our journey. As I was very tired, the slow, easy motion of the camel was welcome and restful to me. All the day I dozed off at intervals to sleep. It turned out to be very disastrous for me, for, when my camel was going up the steep bank of a river, in one of my naps I fell off and hit my head on a stone, lost consciousness, and woke up to find my overcoat covered with blood. My friends surrounded me with their frightened faces. They bandaged my head, and we started off again. I only learned long afterwards from a doctor who examined me that I had cracked my skull as the price of my siesta. We crossed the eastern ranges of the Altai and the Karlik Tag, which are the most oriental sentinels the great Tian Shan system throws out into the regions of the Gobi, and then traversed from the north to the south the entire width of the Kuhu Gobi. Intense cold ruled all this time, and fortunately the frozen sands gave us better speed. Before passing the Kara range, we exchanged our rocking-chair steeds for horses, a deal in which the Torguts skinned us badly like the true old-clothes men they are. Skirting around these mountains, we entered Kansu. It was a dangerous move, for the Chinese were arresting all refugees, and I feared for my Russian fellow-travellers. During the days we hid in the ravines, the forests, and bushes, making forced marches at night. Four days we thus used in this passage of Kansu. The few Chinese peasants we did encounter were peaceful-appearing, and most hospitable. A marked, sympathetic interest surrounded the Kalmuk, who could speak a bit of Chinese, and my box of medicines. Everywhere we found many ill people, chiefly afflicted with eye-troubles, rheumatism, and skin diseases. As we were approaching Nan Shan, the northeast branch of the Altin Tak, which is in turn the east branch of the Pamir and Karakoram system, we overhauled a large caravan of Chinese merchants going to Tibet, and joined them. For three days we were winding through the endless ravine-like valleys of these mountains, and ascending the high passes. But we noticed that the Chinese knew how to pick the easiest routes for caravans over all these difficult places. In a state of semi-consciousness, I made this whole journey toward the large group of swampy lakes feeding the Koku Nor and a whole network of large rivers. From fatigue and constant nervous strain, probably helped by the blow on my head, I began suffering from sharp attacks of chills and fever, burning up at times, and then chattering so with my teeth that I frightened my horse who several times threw me from the saddle. I raved, cried out at times, and even wept. I called my family and instructed them how they must come to me. I remember as though through a dream how I was taken from the horse by my companions, laid on the ground, supplied with Chinese brandy, and, when I recovered a little, how they said to me, The Chinese merchants are heading for the west, and we must travel south. No, to the north, I replied very sharply. But no, to the south, my companions assured me. 
God and the devil! I angrily ejaculated. We have just swum the little Yenisei, and Algiak is to the north. We are in Tibet, remonstrated my companions. We must reach the Brahmaputra. 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 This word revolved in my fiery brain, made a terrible noise and commotion. Suddenly I remembered everything and opened my eyes. I hardly moved my lips, and soon I again lost consciousness. My companions brought me to the monastery of Sharke, where the Lama doctor quickly brought me round with a solution of fatil, or Chinese ginseng. In discussing our plans he expressed grave doubt as to whether we would get through Tibet, but he did not wish to explain to me the reason for his doubts. End of chapter.